0: Oh, my God. No sense. Yeah. <gasps> okay, everybody. <Yeah>. <gasps> <gasps> <gasps>
1: Episode 4 of Jordan Ain't No Joke. Entering the 1997-98 NBA season, Chicago Bulls had won five championships in the previous seven years in E.M. Mouth. But as they sought their second three-peat, the future of the dynasty was in doubt. As preparations began for the 1997-98 season, Jordan and the Bulls granted unprecedented access to a film crew for the entire year. As Jordan was preparing to include his time with the Bulls, Because we never acknowledged his time with the Wizards, three friends in Toronto were about to graduate from university. This is their ruckus, as seen through the ESPN Netflix docuseries, The Last Dance. All right, so this episode, uh, we are tackling episodes seven and eight. So this was the the episodes where Jordan went to play baseball, technically becoming a two-sport athlete. Uh, and so in honor of that, we decided to have, uh, we'll go around and introduce ourselves and say whether we are Team Dion, Deon Sanders, or Team Bo, as in Team Bo Jackson. Those were the two prime, uh, two-sport athletes back in the day, and they both earned 30 for 30s. My name is Sam Union, and I'll let you guys go first.
2: And I'm JT. I, uh, I would have to say I'm definitely Team Bo Jackson. Um, there's a, a great 30 for 30, I think, on, on Bo Jackson as well and uh, I distinctly remember what a big deal he was back in the day because Nike he was a, another one of Nike's a big um, you know athletes that that they promoted um, and I remember his uh, Bo nose uh, commercials and, and he was another guy who really kind of burst into the pop culture in, in an amazing way uh, I never got that same feeling uh, with um, with Deion Sanders I, I don't know if I was maybe too young um, or just not paying attention to Deion Sanders as much, but Bo Jackson felt like he really uh, cut through like nobody else.
0: I'm DC, and uh, I'm going to say Team Bo. Not that I really watched much football, or I watched a little bit of baseball back in the days, but just purely from a from a marketing standpoint, kind of like what Jig is saying, <laughs> I got more exposure to Bo. I know I saw Deion Sanders play here and there, but not the same kind of a campaign.
2: Oh, I distinctly remember uh, Nike did a, a series of these amazing print ads where they had, um, you know, just these wonderful portraits of these, of all these great athletes. And I remember having the Bo Jackson one up on my wall. Uh, I think I tore it out of a, like a magazine, probably a GQ magazine or something. And uh, you know, they had this great sort of copy on it. And at the end of it, it says, you know, Bo knows and then it just has a swoosh or something like that. So he was a big deal, definitely.
1: The Bo campaign, too, was cla- great because, as we've seen in the last dance, uh, there was that David Falk interview from a couple of episodes ago where he said they wanted to market Michael Jordan as a singular athlete, even though he was on a team sport. But what was interesting with the Nike stuff was they were able to bring all their signees together for the Bo Nose campaign. They had, like, Gretzky. They had Jordan. They had a whole bunch of them in the commercials. That was, like, their Avengers, basically. <laughs> like, they had introduced all these different, like, uh, all this stuff and they were able to bring them all together for one big commercial it's pretty cool so we are going to now uh talk about as i said episodes seven and eight and we always kick it off by the episodes don't have a name uh we're going to uh, start giving some of these episodes names uh we're going to pick up where the filmmakers left off who has a good name for episode seven to kick us off
2: uh so yeah <laughs> i couldn't help myself with this one but uh, my favorite one of my favorite lines from this episode is when you know the episode opens with Krauss at the press conference and uh one of the reporters asks him about all the backstabbing that was going on and, and Krauss takes quite a you know he's he's quite offended by the question and he basically cuts short the uh the press conference and walks out and uh just before they cut to the towel sequence, you can hear uh one of the reporters call out the reporter who asked the question and essentially says, way to go, Craig.
0: (laughs) That was one of my picks too.
2: (laughs) You can tell he got beef with Craig too, man. (laughs) Uh, I feel like we need a 30 for 30 on Craig. (laughs) He's always doing that. Yeah. Well, it just, it it was an interesting uh, bit. I mean, obviously it was funny, but it was uh, also, it says a lot about what the press was like back then. I think it's it's a different beast now. I think there's a, there's a lot more chumminess now, with uh, between the press and the, you know, and the, and the players and the, and the coach staff and, and the owners. Um, there's a little more of a tit for tat. People to kind of know what the game is. Uh, back then, there's a feeling that you know reporters were a little more willing to go deep and and you know ask tough questions when they were in front of the uh, you know the athletes. Um, now, you know, it seems like more of that's done, you know, online or in writing, but not so much uh, in person. Uh, but it was just a great, great, fun moment. Uh, and I couldn't help but uh, make that my uh, choice today for the uh, the alternate title.
0: Yeah. And for those who don't know that the, the Craig was Craig Sager, who was a big personality, you know, well, was and still is a big personality in basketball in terms of uh, media personalities. Uh, I don't remember how close he was back in the days, but he was very chummy with players, uh, at least in the 2000s, in the m- mid-90s, Sammy, or late 90s. Was Craig Sager still? Yeah, well, there's a, one episode well, when they're doing the Rodman segment. Yeah. yeah. So Sager gives him the uh, 20 bucks for the fine.
1: Mm-hmm. We talked before about how with NBC, uh, when the games, when the NBA games went to NBC, and how prominent that was with Round Ball Rock and all those kind of things. At the same time, TNT was kind of up and coming as well. And when they had Craig Sager, um, he really shined with like the loud jackets and the weird questions. The, the uh, interviews with Popovich where Pop would be like old man Surly with him, that kind of stuff. So he really made his mark as like kind of one of the more distinct sideline reporters.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, just to clarify what I was saying earlier is that, you know, it, it was, it's not that I think reporters are, are chummier now. Um, I think back then you certainly had uh, more reporters that were closer to individual players, as you see with Ahmad Rashad and, and some of the others. Um, it just feels now like uh, everyone kind of is in on the game and it's kind of like, okay, well, it's a more of a back and forth in terms of, okay, you, you um, scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of thing. And the other reason I, you know, I like using the, the option of, the reason I like uh, the, the Craig line is that the later in the episode, it really shows how his relationship with the press, Jordan's relationship with the press uh, fell apart as well. So it was, that whole episode is an interesting episode when it comes to, the, you know, media and, and, and MJ uh, as
1: well. I think too now, the, a lot of NBA players have production companies. Curry has one. Kevin Durant has one. Matt Barnes, who's retired, but he has uh, all the Smoke podcast. I think a lot of players, and LeBron obviously does a lot of cheese, but I think a lot of players now recognize that, A, media obviously is a lot more accessible because they have a lot more of these outlets, um, and it's a lot more cheaper than things to do. But at the same time, I think it allows them to um, control the narrative a little bit better. I think when they see things, especially like The Last Dance, how media was and and they know their interactions too with um, sports media and it's a larger ecosystem now with podcasts and blogs and all kinds of stuff i think they realize that's a better way to control the narrative and i think that's partly why jordan also agreed to do the last dance and why he's so candid in it it's almost like he's like i want this on the record this is what i was feeling this is where i'm at and i'm like he's kind of almost correcting the narrative if that makes sense well yeah
2: i mean i think it's also that most players now probably go through some sort of media training Uh, I don't know when that started necessarily with uh, professional sports uh, but certainly I would think sometime after the 80s maybe even in the the 90s and uh, I don't know that you know Michael that necessarily did any of that Uh, so things were much more raw Uh, but now uh, as you were saying uh, Sam is that you know everyone's pretty media savvy and and a lot of them are just, you know, they create their own media now. So uh, they, they know the game on and off the court.
1: Find um, or are you missing any of the balance? Like uh, we had a quick little like cameo appearance of Jordan's wife, for example. The kids have appeared once or twice. They were in the French episode in the first episode, uh, but they were little ones. Like this is completely a basketball story. Uh, I know, like they did talk about his dad dying and his mom and stuff like that. But for the most part, that balance is kind of—you find it weird, or like it's the right balance, or how do you find that between the personal and the basketball? You know, it's
0: it's really—I um, think, like for me, anyways, it goes back to like they have X amount of time. I think there's all there's a lot of importance uh, with family because you're trying to get a sense of the man, the man during the games and after the game. But uh, I think also, you know, with the bitter divorce, <laughs> there, that could be reasons why <laughs> Juanita Jordan is not featured too much. I There was some talk by the kids that, or by somebody that the kids are gonna be a little more featured in the next two episodes. Um, so, yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's hard to get it all in for sure. Um, and, you know the relationship with the wife, uh, I, as Danny mentions, is it, it uh, with Juanito. It, that, that's a very complicated relationship, <laughs> to say the least. Um, so I, I don't. That would take a whole another documentary, probably. Um, and and it really is not that important to you know the main story here. But you know, to your point, I personally would love to see more of that and, and gain more insight from him as a family man, uh, because. Um, you know, I'm sure his schedule and his work ethic took a toll on the family and it'd be interesting to hear what they feel about it now. But, I don't, yeah, I don't think you'll ever get much uh, from his ex-wife. That's for sure.
1: She's got her own last dance beef. Denny, what was your title? Do you have another title for Episode 7 other than Way to Go, Craig?
0: Uh, Yeah, I mean, there's... Um... <laughs> There's so many titles that could go with this episode. Uh I think one of them I uh, would be Love Hurts. And uh so there's a you know, there's a big theme about the tough love that Jordan gave all his teammates in this episode, you know, featuring Scotty Burrell. And
1: uh, moment of silence again for Scotty Burrell. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
0: this is the funny thing. So that's been the narrative like throughout all the kind of media outlets or the sports discussions, is that Oh, how Michael treated Scotty Burrell. But then when you watch the doc, Scott Burrell's like, Yo, I gave it back to him. You know, he was a cool guy when you're when you're not talking off the court. And the guy was just trying to raise everybody's level. He actually never once said, Oh shit. Like it was, it was it's funny and this is <laughs> a little racist, I guess, but it's like it was all the white dudes who were like, Oh, he was an asshole, oh he you know, he punched me, or like I was scared of him. But Scott Burrell said, no, that's just, that was just his way of trying to light a fire under us. Scotty Pippen said, you know, I needed him to be like that. He needed to be the tough guy. I mean, you know, like that's, it obviously wasn't all the white dudes. Bill Weddington was like, I know why Mike did it and it worked, yeah. right? And even Purdue said, yeah, after a while you understood what he was trying to do. And you do you think that he was a great teammate. But he also called him an asshole, a
1: jerk, and all that. Well, there, in the next episode, uh, when Jordan was coming back post baseball, uh, there was that scene where B.J. Armstrong was like, they had breakfast together. And he's like, "Why didn't you come down to practice one time? The team kind of misses you, or like, you know what I mean?" He kind of said like, "Come on by." Like, it's not like he was like this like super toxic like co- coworker or something like that. He was just a little bit like difficult to deal with. That was it. But it seemed like. Because they were succeeding and doing well, and they were becoming better basketball players, I think in the end they recognized that this was worth it. It was tough. It's like the uh, when you go into the Marines or whatever, you have that boot camp. It was just Jordan boot camp.
0: Yeah, and I don't understand like the narrative out there. Like everybody is focused. They're talking about how he's a mean guy or he was a bully. Like how things really turned? to that degree where people, it's a completely foreign concept to them that in these types of situations and particularly in sports that you're going to get personalities like this, Mm. you're going to get alpha, alpha dogs who are going to bark because they want everybody to work at that same level intensity.
1: Yeah. And I think you mentioned the point before too, where like we forget that other players do this. Like I've seen Tom Brady chew out his like teammates. On the bench uh when he was playing for the new england patriots you know he's not exactly saying like good job dropping the ball there guy you'll get the next one you know what i mean like he's tearing into the guy so yeah yeah i don't know where this narrative comes from it is a weird thing and like you said it's also just isolated like it's just they just particularly single out jordan because when kerr talks about it too in the fight that they had like he was saying how competitive he was and how angry and irritated he was with jordan like he just didn't have the authority and the ability to properly back it up, as he was saying.
2: Yeah, I mean, he he literally said that I I wasn't as talented uh, to back it up. So at the end of the day, I mean, I think you know, and I, I, I hesitate to get ahead of myself because the episode ends with you know I think one of the most emotional moments in the whole series so far. But you know, this it wasn't coming from you know from Michael just being a jerk for for being a jerk's sake, you know what I mean? Like, you, he, he, he had a vision, he had a goal, and sometimes you gotta drag people kicking and screaming to get the best out of them. Um, it's very easy, I mean, you know, the human mind is, you know, essentially lazy. You know, you, you, and if you wanna do something great, you need to be, you know, sometimes cajoled and bullied, unfortunately, it, it, to to do those great things um and you know michael people forget like and you got a sense of this at the end of the episode where um he had been through quite a bit i mean think about someone um as talented and as he was when he first came on the scene and then getting injured so badly and then having to rebuild himself come back and then essentially help build this franchise um that took a lot out of the man and you know this episode there's a theme of of Michael just being tired um by it all I mean you want your teammates to want the same thing if if you're putting that much into the game and um and I think with like you know with Burrell is that he seemed like I I mean Michael you said that he you know he was just such a nice guy that was part of it but um he was also malleable and that's what Mike Michael needed, and um, and so I think someone like Burrell uh, thrived in that situation. Others, you know, by at the end of the day, all thrived, Maybe they didn't enjoy it as much, um, or maybe they don't. They don't remember it as, as nicely. But uh, it, this is a theme throughout this whole series where we've talked about what it takes to do great things. You know, I, I mean, and you know, histories in all fields is is riddled with these kind of you know characters like Michael Jordan who are just often perceived as tyrants, um, but they're tyrants in the service of a a vision uh, of something that's never been done before. You know, know, we're talking about your Steve Jobs or or Bill Gates or even people like that who have reputations for being tough, but they're tough on very talented people who need that extra push to to push through. Uh, And that's what this episode ultimately was about for me.
1: You wish we saw more of Phil Jackson as a coach too? I find that's a little bit, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's feel, a little thin, an, isn't it?
2: So that's an interesting point because I feel like it, we haven't had enough of Phil Jackson aside from that, I guess that Rodman episode. Part of that may be that, uh, uh, you know, the director talked about how he had very little time with Phil Jackson. like uh, He had one day uh he was they were supposed to be he was going to give them only like a a couple hours they ended up getting like i think six or seven hours out of him but it was just that one chance and that's all he got so uh maybe he just didn't have enough maybe he's saving it for another episode uh but i do wish we saw more of phil for sure
0: phil needs his own 10 episodes really oh yeah
2: oh easy yeah i mean what a story
0: well 11 i guess if you want (laughs) one for every ring right yeah but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, going back to the whole the Jordan thing and the tyrant stuff. I mean, I think that's like, it's so easy to say that. But all those dudes from that generation, and even the generation after him, that's that's part of the game. Trash talking is part of the game. And that's just all extended trash talking, right? Now, people trash talk for different reasons. At least he was doing it for leadership reasons. He was trying to get light fires under people's asses, not just to say, oh, well, I'm better than you. Because he already, everybody knows he's better than everybody there. He's trying to get everybody motivated. And I guess, you know, that's a, that becomes a question of, well, is it the best way to motivate people?
2: Well, I mean, to be devil's advocate here, like you, even Phil Jackson says at a certain point he had to rein Michael in. So there may be something, you know, we never hear, you know, the the worst of it uh, there are players who intimate intimate that you know he crossed the line a few times and we never really see or hear what that crossing of the line was um so it's possible that he he did go too far and and, and luckily phil jackson was there to rein him in when when needed um but there yeah i don't know there might be something to uh, you know what those guys are saying but at the end of the day uh end of the day with hindsight being 2020 you look back and i don't see any of them regretting their time there uh you got rings to have, they got rings and none of them seem to have any traumatic uh you know ptsd from it uh, they seem to be doing just fine
0: except except maybe craig elo though.
2: and maybe
1: tony google <laughs> rest in peace craig elo oh. but it's hard to like um pull this out of context too because you're talking about 82 games they're on buses all the time. They're on planes all the time. They're on different time zones. To spend all that time with somebody, especially go from like October to June because they were winning championships. Yeah, there's going to be times when people are angry or whatever it may be and are irritated or frustrated or they had a bad game the day before, like they didn't get enough sleep. There's all these different things like over the course of the season. So you could easily pull out a moment or two and say, see, he was a jerk. He was mean to me. He's whatever. I think it's just because over the course of a time, like you have to allow so much time and acknowledge so much time. I don't know that you can isolate one or two minute like moments and say, he was mean to me. And this is who he is exactly.
2: Oh, yeah, Oh For sure. You know, a lot of these things, they, they have a compound effect, right? Like, you know, they, they, they multiply and they add one adds to the other and it just gets bigger and bigger and, you know, pressure builds up and under those stressful situations, I'm sure guys, uh, you know, didn't always take it. You know, in the most good-natured way, but uh, but I mean, there's no doubt he was a tough leader, and uh, that's what uh, they need. I mean, Michael says, you know, it's like if you can't take me yelling at you, what are you gonna do in the playoffs? Like, that's a legitimate point. Teammate. Yeah, I'm I'm your teammate. I'm here to help you help us win this thing. And you're if you're gonna cry uh, when when I'm talking to you, what are you gonna do when you're out there and you've got like. The Patrick Ewing, and you, and we're facing the Knicks, or or, or the Charles Oakley, or Charles Oakley, or, or what are you guys going to do there? So like, you know,
0: no, that's such a good point because actually, in that moment, the the first thing I thought of was um, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, <laughs> <laughs> when Alec Baldwin has given that that speech to all the guys, and he's like, "If you can't take this, how are you going to take it in on, on a sit or whatever the line was?" Yeah, brass and that balls reminded me exactly of that mentality.
2: Yeah, it's so true. There's you know, there's so much about this documentary that feels like a movie. Uh like a lot some of these lines that you know that they're saying, they they feel like, wow, this is right out of a movie. Uh which is uh, which is apt and certainly in that case where he's like, You can't handle this, how are you gonna handle the, the layoffs?
1: Yeah, a lot of the drama, like um modern NBA now, a lot of players are like fighting for like minutes or um, they don't want to sit on the bench or whatever. They want to start. It's these little, it's these little dramas. Well, yeah, well, it all comes down
2: to, you know, the work, right? I mean, there's a great line that Jordan says in the huddle um, just before they're going out, uh, I think, to, to play the Nets. Starts off with hard work, ends with champagne.
1: Yeah, that's a great so, line.
2: Like, the champagne, mm. you know, if you guys are thinking about the champagne without the hard work, then, you know, you don't belong here. Uh, and it's such a great, great line. Way a great, great, great way to motivate, uh, you know, your teammates.
1: So, with everything that we've seen and everything we've talked about with Jordan, here's a question: Then, would you want to be Jordan's teammate and go through all that battles and all that hard work, and end, and it ends in champagne six times? It ends it in champagne, or do you want to face Jordan? Do you want to be like on the Knicks or some other team, and then know that Jordan's going to mash you on your nose. You're going to get mashed on your nose either way.
2: Oh, I mean, th- this is that classic, like, you know, uh, how much would you, uh, how much money would you, would it take for you to go in the ring with Tyson for one, one second or 10 seconds or whatever, uh, you know, it, this is a team sport. So hundred percent I'd be, I'd be, you know, on the bulls and, uh, learning everything I can from him. If, you know, if, if I was a ball player, I, I don't know that I want to be on the other side of it. He's just too great. I don't think, and I don't think there's much cachet in saying, "Yeah, I, I got obliterated by Jordan." Well, you know, most people do. But if you got to say that I played with Jordan, then that's a different story.
0: I mean, it's kind of a, it's a bit of a dead end situation, right? Because if you know you're going to get licked every single time, <laughs> yes. I think most people would probably want to be on the Bulls. And if you ask me, well, if we really, if I was on a team and we really believed. We could, you know, at least challenge them. Mm-hmm. Then, yeah, it'd be tempting to say, if I can kind of like, I don't know, give them like a, a just a regular night, not a super night, then you know, no, man, it's a
2: it's a no win situation because then you become B J Armstrong. As, well, <laughs> you, I could you, be you, Joel Dumars, you, right? You, but you get you have that one good game, you get you get a little. uh confidence in you and then Michael comes back and destroys right. you
0: <laughs> well but he's destroying everybody anyway yeah. <laughs> no I but
2: know. he but then you get angry Michael because he, he gets angry like he they, that game against the Nets like they didn't lose the game they just had a bad game but he came back so mad and he just uh, obliterated
1: them and, and then the whole thing with um well, the magic too they destroyed them for a whole season they destroyed the entire NBA for a whole season 172 games because Nick Anderson stole the ball, and that thing with LeBradford Bradford uh, Smith.
2: Uh, I mean, I mean, even if you don't even have to say anything, Jordan, if he just feels like you slide it in, he'll make up shit in his head just to take it out on you the next game. Yeah, the George Carl
1: restaurant thing, like...
0: yeah, and well, yeah, and we can get into all of that stuff more in like when we talk about episode eight.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But it's uh, it's kind of a stark contrast when you think of, you know what once jordan left and then Pippin became you know the man on the team and A, it was different because you know everybody's saying well you know they didn't have to deal with people yelling at them anymore and pip was the guy who will help you up pat your back saying it's okay but then you also get pip who doesn't go into the game because he feel like he needed to take the last shot in that 94 uh, playoff game versus the Knicks. Mm. So that, you know, that right there was like another, another title for this episode for me was like, which which was a really good line. Uh, when they said, Phil, Phil Jackson said, fuck him, Pete Myers, come on in.
2: (laughs) That needs to be t-shirt. A hundred percent. And I think that that's, that's a perfect encapsulation of the ultimate difference or the ultimate thing that sets Jordan apart from everyone else is that leadership right like there is no way that not that that would have jordan would have been in that situation but the fact that he completely crumbled in terms of leadership in that moment well, it was pure uh you know it was bs and, and you could see the you know the ramifications of it and it's weird because pippin now says that he regrets it but he wouldn't change anything about it so it's kind of a weird weird headspace that he's in but you know even michael you know back in the day when it was it their first championship when when he, he you know the, he could have t- kept the ball but he passed it to who was it paxton what, what year was that 91
0: yeah, it was 91.
2: yeah the, the 91 it's like and phil jackson tells him you did it the right way i mean that's that's real leadership that's that's a, a warrior who knows what it takes to win and if it if it means passing the ball you pass the ball and Pip was a bit of a prima donna in that moment. And, and that's just really unfortunate. And, and MJ says, like, you know, Pip's never going to live that down. And, uh, and it's true. Yeah. And so ultimately, uh, what sets Jordan apart from, you know, arguably the number two player in the league uh, was that moment where Pippen decides um, that he'd rather sit on the bench if he's not going to get the uh, ball. And to Phil Jackson's credit, he said, "Well, fuck him. It's not the, te- the This game is not about one man. Uh, it's about the team." And uh, and Pippen really lost a lot of points, uh, uh, you know, professionally in that moment. Okay. Well, maybe maybe we can uh, sh- switch gears here. And uh, so obviously the big uh, the big story in this episode is uh, the death of James Jordan, and uh, that tragedy that. Um, like really bizarre and uh, strange twist uh, to this. Uh, very
0: strange timing.
2: Very strange timing, and um, so the documentary, you know, does go into a little bit about how the media kind of d- does Jordan dirty in this whole situation when his father passed away, and tries to make connections between his gambling and and uh, the murder um, of his father. Uh, ultimately, it seems like the the documentary's pretty strongly on the side of it being all BS. I think it probably is, because we've talked about this in the past in the the episode about his gambling and how you know we'd ever, I think we all have seemed to agree that it wasn't necessarily true that he was a gambling addict or had a problem. It it was a competition problem with him. So uh, the idea that that was all connected seems thin, to say the least. What, What do you guys think?
0: For sure, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's I, I I guess honestly I don't have too much to say about it because I think it's just stupidity. You know, I think it's just I don't know. It's dumb. That's all.
1: Yeah, well, that's why I called I my title for this episode was Jordan's Tears. For obviously for the two reasons. One is that scene at the end where he's crying cuz he's talking about competition and the price of leadership and winning, but also because this dealt with his dad's passing. It's interesting because the first time that Jordan retired uh, was, was in 93, 94 or whatever it was. When that happened, because his dad had died and because he went to baseball, I honestly believe that was the end. This wasn't just like, I don't know, like a football player taking a couple of years off or somebody like that. Like this really felt like the end. I know Jordan was dealing with his own grief, but at the same time, we were also dealing with our own grief too because my man was gone. Like it just seemed like an abrupt ending. I understood it because he needed the time and the space because of the dad thing, but at the same time, it's like, well, what about us?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, it was um, and, uh, I mean, the footage that they had of of you know people all over the world watching you know TV when he's making that announcement. I mean, it's kind of amazing to think that it, that retirement was a you know where were you when it happened type moment. I don't know that that would, that necessarily happens anymore. I mean, people. Like if LeBron retires, I don't know that it'll be the same thing.
1: Uh, Some as, fireworks probably.
2: They'll be they'll be, but I don't know that it'll be that sort of like everyone stopped in the streets, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, this was this was a monumental thing, and I just remember thinking like, "Wow, that's that's it. <laughs> it's yeah. done. it's done." And uh, and of course, at that point, no one's ever thinking that he he would come back. I mean, I don't even think at that age I was uh, that I thought that it was even possible even though he kind of leaves leaves the door open in the press conference but I just was like that's it like well, is this even possible for him to come back even though that's what we all want
0: what I thought was so interesting I remember back in those days watching that press conference I was surprised at how stoic he was and how kind of uh, I don't know how hearted for lack of a better word, he was, despite what had just happened really recently. And um, it's not that I, you know, made me suspicious of anything, but just like, wow, he's really keeping it to himself. He's really putting on like layers of of, of privacy of a mask that he does not want to share with his, his feelings on his father, what had happened with his father. And even in the words that he used, he'll never, he makes an extremely conscious effort of not being a victim, but I think it's okay to you know for something like that that horrendous to happen in your family to, to kind of feel like to be honest about it and he never had and even within this documentary, like it's still you know he talks about it, but he the whole thing about that like he says turning a positive out of a negative, you know it's a little. He's really keeping it like, like a mod said, he keeps it to the vest, really, very close to the vest.
2: You know, it could be, it could be one of those things that it's also that it, it just cuts so deep that he, he has to put up those walls. I mean, we do we do see a much more emotional Jordan later in life. Um, obviously, the memes, <laughs> the crying memes, and what have you uh, yeah. back in the you know when he I think it was a Hall of Fame uh, induction. I wonder though, if he always had it in the back of his mind that he was going to come back, despite what he was saying publicly, I, I think maybe he really just needed this sort of sabbatical and and that it was always his intention to come back. So that might be part of it as well. And, and, you know, it, as he aged and, and got older, he he was much more emotional, but, uh, you know, there are some things, man, like something like that, you know, you it could just be one of those things that you put up such deep and, you know, thick walls uh, around that part of your life because it's just too much to deal with, especially in a public way.
1: The second episode, um, the one where he, the, they had that scene, that classic scene after he defeated the Sonics and he was in the locker room. Oh, he had the I ball, know. right? We've seen that. Cause that was, they aired that, but they didn't air the sobs back then. At least I don't remember the, the sobs. I, the sobs. Oh you my mean The,
0: God. Uh, the audio. Yeah. Yes. They didn't hear that, did
1: they, Denny? I don't remember the sobs like that. That was like.
0: But they might not have picked up on the audio. Like, those were the the broadcast video cameras that we watched as teenagers.
2: Yeah. They might have cut those out. Yeah. They might have had commentary over it or whatever. Yeah.
1: I remember that scene. And then when you hear it, you're like, yo, man. Like, you. (laughs) It wrecks you a little bit too, right? You're like, (laughs) you have a little tear come down your eye, right? Because it's like.
2: Oh, well, for sure. I mean, it, it's it's never, it's always uncomfortable hearing a grown man cry, but to, to hear... Uh, sobs, man. Those, those weren't were crying. Yeah, those were like deep, deep uh, guttural sobs that uh, were just from a deep place of sadness and joy, I think, uh, at the same time. Uh, so that was I, like, I, emotional. to watch. I don't know
0: about the joy at that moment, but uh, those are, I think, those are two years of pent-up emotions, too. Like just, just maybe not facing. Well, not not facing, but you know, just, just letting it all go.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, you know, James Jordan's impact on on his son is is you know nothing small. I mean, he, as he says in the in the episode, you know, he was his rock. He was his uh, his best friend, his his confidant, his uh, you know his his man he was he was, he was always with him i mean it, it was one of those relationships that um i think uh, only fathers and sons can really understand and uh when you're dealing with a life as large and on a large scale like that the decisions that they would have had to make together and the problems and situations that would have arose that's it's it's hard not to be become emotional about it and 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 then for it to end that way
1: is just uh Just so tragic. It's fascinating because it's like his parents clearly didn't care who that he was. Michael Jordan, (laughs) you know, I mean, the basketball player. It's pretty clear that they were like, "Boy, get your car, like, get your butt in the car," like that kind of tone, right? So, Jordan allowed it from them because of who they were, but there wasn't very many people that could tell Jordan or talk to Jordan in that way and in that tone, and I think he also found that valuable. And I think as the series will go along too. The demands on Jordan and people just wanting things, and we saw already the tickets and like how much people wanted tickets from him and all those kind of things all those things like his parents probably just were like, "Look, we know who you are and we understand you, and so they can he could be himself like all the motions and all the other stuff just put be himself and that's probably a relief too.
2: well, they ground him, right? like I mean when you're someone like Michael Jordan or a celebrity of any stature, if you don't have people that can ground you, um, you just become. Uh, unmoored, right, like you just, uh, uh, it's impossible to be, have any semblance of of, of a normal life when every day at work, you know, 20,000 people are, you know, cheering and and telling you how much they love you, so, you you know, you need people like that, and luckily for um, uh, MJ, those people were his parents, not everyone has that, Uh, certainly not everyone uh, coming from his background either right so it it, it was a seems like a, a wonderful relationship that that ended too soon and uh, so okay I have to ask you guys though um, so once this uh, retirement happens uh, the media goes nuts and makes these connections and then there's this rumor that it was really a 18th month 18 month suspension uh, what do you guys think do you think there was any uh, truth to that
0: once again, just bullshit.
2: Yeah, it seems like the documentary is trying to sort of put to rest a lot of these big stories about about Michael Jordan, whether uh, was a gambling or the suspension. And it's just weird. It was a weird obsession, I have to say. Like, it just seems so like such a weird obsession.
1: There's an interesting story uh, when Michael Jordan was in his second year. I think it was in his second year of the Chicago Bulls. He, him and his ex-wife Juanita. Well, at the time they weren't even married, so. They had a child out of wedlock. Nowadays it's like nobody cares or whatever. but Jordan like had the kid with him and he ran into the reporter somewhere. I can't remember which reporter it was, but he ran into the reporter and so the reporter was in this weird position where he didn't know if he should report that Jordan had a kid or not. It's a weird dilemma of like having a kid out of wedlock doesn't really, I, doesn't care like are they gonna like defeat the Knicks next week or like you know what I mean like there's bigger issues at stake. It didn't seem like a big thing. There's a weird moral authority that the, a lot of the media had. And I think that's where some of the gambling stuff comes from. They can pass this judgment. And so once the gambling stuff started coming out, they were passing this judgment. And eventually, when Jordan did, like, that was one of Jordan's first scandals, having a kid out of wedlock. And so people were like, you know, your role model, you should be married, you should be, like, it's all these old fashioned values. But it's a weird, moral response to a player that's like I'm just playing basketball dude like you know what I mean
2: but you know the thing with Jordan also is that they had nothing else to to go on in terms of the game right like <laughs> there was just nothing they could really hang on him there and he did do a pretty good job of creating a sort of all-american squeaky clean image you know with his endorsements and what have you so um this was something that they could sort of latch on to and you know it it obviously makes a good story but um it was just uh, i i mean the whole through line of of the gambling thing kind of comes to a climax for me in this episode uh because ultimately it's it was on you know not very uh firm ground uh, these rumors and Uh, And ultimately comes down to them doing him dirty with the the way they make those connections to his father's death. And I I have a feeling that we're probably not going to hear much about the gambling anymore. I think that's pretty much uh, done.
0: Yeah. Early clickbait. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good, uh, that's a good analogy actually. Yeah. It's just, it's just a way to just drum up readership, selling newspapers. And, you know, I think, you know, in the nineties too, you're kind of, getting more into that cnn style of journalism where people just need a 24-hour news cycle and you got to come up with shit to write and uh, you need to sell papers
1: and jordan was a big enough name that like uh, anything that you wrote about him people are going to find it and read it so that's like we've seen this kind of little cottage industry of uh, president trump right now where people are writing all kinds of books and making documentaries and stuff like this and he's a terrible president. We agree. He's awful for the country. We agree. But everybody's making a lot of money and a lot of exposure and making a lot of careers off of him. So as bad as he is, he's also really good. And Jordan was the same way because he was, he was the golden goose. So if you could just write about him, if you could write uh, the dude who wrote uh, Sam Smith, who wrote the Jordan Rules, there was a lot of different ways that people could make money off of Jordan or somehow connect yourself to Jordan and get yourself to a higher level.
2: And even Sam Smith wasn't willing to go there with the whole gambling connection uh, to, the, to the death of his father. So there's clearly like uh, enough time has passed for, you know, you know the truth usually stands with the passing of time. And uh, it seems like a lot of those bullshit stories have kind of fallen by the wayside. Um, the one, the other thing is I want to talk about in this episode is, is this whole idea of um, Michael you know switching over to baseball um, and i mean it's just incredible to think that he not only did he make the switch in the game but he also changes his whole body to play the game and that just uh, that takes a certain level of warrior mentality to sort of you know be humble enough or to be willing willing to be humbled and and just start from the bottom uh, that that part of the story is i found it just incredible that he retrained his body to build himself up to be an outfielder his trainer gets pretty emotional in the episode actually when he talks about Tim it Grover. Tim Grover he, he gets pretty emotional he's like you know he's gonna do whatever it takes and he was willing to just you know rebuild himself and then he has to rebuild himself back to come back to, to basketball which is again it's really hard to do and this just goes back to you know the trash talking and what it takes to be a leader, it's easy to sort of gloss over those those facts. It was, oh, yeah, he, so he, he became a baseball player and he had to trade differently and whatever. It was like, no, he had to break himself down and rebuild himself twice over that 18-month period. Uh, those kind of things take uh, a certain kind of metal and a certain kind of uh, person. And, and so when he's on that court, I mean, he's coming with that baggage with him. Whereas a lot of these guys, and we've talked about this before, are maybe not as tough and, and a little softer.
1: Tim Grover thing, like um, Jordan doesn't get enough credit. He was one of the first NBA players to go out and get a proper trainer and to set that whole thing up. And I know by now, by the time we get to LeBron James, but he's eating like the, the chicken breast with no skin on it and like doing the proper nutrition and the health and all that kind of stuff. But Jordan was one of the first ones to kind of set that up. And like, I'm like, it's a different type of dedication that we sure, had never sure. seen before. I,
2: uh, Tim Grover and Jordan together were, the, f- I think, one of the first to really start taking weight training uh, seriously uh, as part of the training and, and packing on muscle. I mean, if you look at players' bodies up until then, they were, you know, tend to be tall and lanky, right? Like, you know, but you look at Jordan, I mean, he got kind of ripped. I mean, he was lean, but he was ripped.
1: And Denny liked that story from the last episode where, like, they were talking about, like, uh, they would get the cigarettes from the coach (laughs) back in the day. Like, they were drinking beer during halftime and those kind of stories. Like, those were classic NBA stories. People were doing coke and drinking beer and (laughs) smoking. Um, Players would be outside sometimes smoking if it wasn't, like, a winter game. You know, like, those kind of things. So, it's, again, just another – Jordan's never going to get the proper credit for this. Larry Bird and Magic brought the NBA to a certain point of prominence, and there's no box score for that, and there's no way to pro- give him proper recognition for that. And then Jordan took it to another level; he built it on top of that. Like they were the foundation, and he built it even higher. And again, again with the trainer and all that kind of work, and he's not going to fully ever get the credit for that.
2: Uh, yeah, it's it's one of those you know things that just doesn't get talked about enough. Um, but uh, and then it just you know this episode kind of climaxes with that emotional wallop of of a moment where you know you have purdue talking about what an asshole he was and then michael talking about you know what it takes to be a leader a leader and and to win and he gets really emotional like he it's the first time we've seen him just straight up you know about to cry and he asked for a camera to cut and um it's a just to me that everything comes to that down to that moment for who this, that man ultimately is. Um, And he, and he says, you know, it's like, I I never asked him to do anything I didn't do myself. And, uh, and that's what it comes down to when when you're talking about leadership on the court is uh, you know, you're not being asked to do any more than the best guy.
1: Go uh, back and look at that scene. The tequila is still full. Like that was an early.
2: So here's an interesting story. So uh, the the director talks about um, that moment in an interview. And um, he says that that moment was 40 minutes into the first interview they did with him. 40 minutes into the first interview, uh, Michael gets that emotional. And and the other thing that was in the first 40 minutes uh, 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 that he ever interviewed Michael was the cocaine circus story. So he's a, he was like, <clears throat> after that first hour of interviewing him, he was like, I had him laughing his ass off and then crying. And so he was like, oh my God, like I think I have something here. And uh, so it's incredible to think that like that happened so early in the process. Uh, and you know, he obviously doesn't use it until this mo- episode seven, but you can tell that Michael seemed to wanna ha- get a lot off his chest. Um, and in some ways, this is, what is kind of a confessional for him.
0: So yeah, let's let's really kind of, let's try to really take a deep dive into those that moment where he starts to get misty and he starts to get emotional. What do you think those tears meant for Michael Jordan? Okay, well, I'll, I'll give you an idea of kind of where I what it, my train of thought was when I saw those tears because he was, I think it was basically you know it was talking when he was talking about that perception of being an asshole and the last things he said before he started tearing up was, if you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. And so I was just, I was trying to think, I mean, what exactly was he feeling? What hurt him? Or was he feeling hurt? Did he feel like maybe like all that hard work that he put into it and all the accolades, all the championships, he still maybe, there's a part of him that still feels misunderstood or maybe underappreciated or just in a way devalued because because people think he was, I don't know, being selfish? I mean, any thoughts about what those tears might have meant?
2: I mean, I I think along those lines, I think it, it to me it came across as you know, that notion of the misunderstood artist. And, you know, people see the masterpiece, they don't see the thousand paintings or pages of of a book that got thrown out. Uh, And you you got a sense of that in the way they cut that moment because they were were flashing back to like all the tough moments he had over the years. And Michael's talking about, you know, this is what it takes. And you're seeing these moments of when he was injured and when he uh when you know the fans hated him and, and, and all this stuff that it just builds up. And I truly feel like, you know, if, if you're someone who's that obsessed with something, there is a part of you that feels that there is no one else on this earth that will understand your obsession and will, will understand what you go through. People can analyze it and and you know make best guesses and, and judgments on it but you will never understand what it feels like to be in that body and be that man in, in his head and that's why i you know i have often felt that michael transcended the sport in a certain way to to make it a really a, a, a an artistic thing where it's just like he's this artistic genius on the court that um you know it it took you know a million you know it took a million brush strokes to get that perfect you know jump shot or you know, or or what have you like it, it, i really think it was one of those things where he just felt he, no one will ever understand him and maybe maybe his dad was that person who did understand him and maybe he was doing it for his dad um and and he unfortunately never got to see the whole pi- picture finished but uh, I, I, I took it that to feel like he just he just felt alone.
1: I felt it was love. I think he was crying out of love because you guys have kids. I don't have kids, at least according to the, the courts. But I don't have kids, but you guys have kids. And so there are times when like a kid wants to have like ice cream or gummy bears or something, whatever it is for dinner, and you have to say to them, no, you have to have like vegetables or whatever healthy people eat. And the, there's these times when you have to make these choices and the kid doesn't get it. Like you're being mean, you're being unfair, you're being rude, you're being whatever it is. And they get upset and they're crying. But ultimately what it is is that you want the best for the kid and you're trying to do the best for the kid. And you're trying so hard. The kid doesn't get it just because they're three. And I think that's what Jordan was crying over. It was like, he wanted so much for the Bulls, for the organization, for the city, for the fans, for everybody. He was trying to do so much. But people didn't want to put the time in or they didn't want to work or they want to coast. They couldn't get up to the level that he wanted them to get up to. And So he was trying to love them the way that they are, but he was asking them to do something that they may not be able to do. Um, and I think that was the way he was demonstrating his love. It wasn't a normal way that where you bring like, and flowers and stuff like that the traditional type of love it was the way that jordan loved
0: so you think those tears were a signal of his love for the game or for for just the, the player, career that and he the, had? yeah sorry.
1: and the purity of the game but also for the players
0: hmm. okay cool 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 yeah i mean
1: i think he generally loved the bulls i think so but i you know
0: i'm I think I lean towards the maybe closer to what Jigger's talking about, because I felt like that tier was for himself, really more than something that was being kind of expressed out for everybody. But because um, yeah, I don't know. I I felt like for me, it felt just like this is all the stuff that I do, and they still I still need to justify it. Like I did this all to win, and I did it for everybody. And then people still questioning my and I, I felt like it was, like, one of those, maybe it's a bit of a lonely, it's lonely at the top kind of a tear. And then that goes back for me to Jigger was saying, like, and that's what he needed his father for. And that's kind of why he retired in the first place. And, like, that for me were represented why he retired the first time. Because all you fuckers don't understand. I do all this shit just for the love of it. Right? I don't need your fucking money. Right? Because, he, well, you know, he was smart enough he had a good agent but he didn't, he wasn't the highest paid guy there.
2: No, I early. mean, I, I mean, he right, did
0: everything that he did and he did it as.
2: Uh, even uh, the uh, the Bulls owner says that when Michael was playing baseball, he was still paying him his NBA salary because he was underpaid uh, just in terms of his salary. Uh, so it wasn't about the money. Um, yeah. But, but also to, you know, to, to along the lines of what we were saying earlier is that I think he, Genuinely, he wanted this for everybody but i think the tears were about not any every, everybody was not willing to do what he was willing to do and so ultimately he says if you don't want to play that way don't play that way and what that means is he's alone because he is playing that way and there's i think there's a sad sadness
1: to that just compounded by the doubts it's incredibly weird that after everything, he's still doubted. I don't know how much more you can do. We're going to see the last, obviously, in the last two episodes, the Utah Jazz series, and the Bulls were not the favorites for that one. The Jazz were expected to win that series. The Bulls were the underdogs in that series. How? Like, Vegas Odds, the sports media, like, remember we, in the was it the second episode? The I think it was the second one where, Jordan in the Cleveland series, and he was going up to each of the writers. We took care of you. We took care of you. We're going to take care of you tonight. And it's the same thing. We were like, again, the media was just like, yeah, you, the Jazz are going to take this. They're a much better team. I'm like, five championships in? And I'm like, how much more can he do?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I have to dig into that season's box scores and stats and team records and stuff like that. I think Utah had the best... Uh, record that year so and you know and i think the bulls were like this document is telling you all the kind of all the shit that they were going through this last season and so i started seeing signals of okay these guys are these guys are ready to tire right the whole management themselves were like we believing in the team everybody's gone phil's gone for this year so there's lots of reasons for people to cast doubts. For that final
1: season is there anything else you want to add to the to that moment by the way everybody when that that montage happened at the end of seven uh, that music too we've talked a lot about the soundtrack that sound that, i don't know that was obviously um obviously the original music that they put for this um episode but whatever it was it like lit up uh internet tune feed all the sites and stuff from places where people go to find Music in the in a TV show or commercial, or whatever. So, whoever <laughs> the broadcaster or whoever wrote that song needs to release it immediately because uh, they will do quite well. Uh,
2: this is the 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 music that I was playing under him talking about what well, it takes to yeah. win.
0: Interesting, it's probably six track.
2: It's probably what? It's
0: probably stock track.
2: Stock track. Okay, so why don't we uh, transition to uh, episode eight? Uh,
1: so, of course, episode seven ends with that. Uh, great montage and uh jordan in tears and the uh winning has a price now we're going to uh, switch to episode eight uh, where he leaves and ends up coming back to the nba in dramatic fashion so what were your titles uh for episode eight all right so my title for episode eight
2: is uh, black capone um, and the, the the reason is for that w- w- amazing scene where uh, after they uh, they didn't lose to the Nets they just had a really bad game to the Nets uh, after Michael publicly talked about how you know impossible uh, it would be to lose to the Nets they, they'd have to be asleep to lose to the Nets uh, and then the Nets take them for uh, I, it was a pretty close game it was like a two point game or something like that mm-hmm. uh, it was a low scoring game and. Uh, Michael was just livid, and uh, there's this great scene in the in the in the in the, uh, in the change room uh, where he's.
0: Well, they actually did lose that game.
2: Did they lose that game?
0: the game that... two against the Hornets, and that's when BJ uh, oh, won the game. For yeah, them.
2: Sorry, I was thinking of the other. Yeah, I was thinking it yeah, was against the Hornets. That's right. And uh, uh MJ's there in the in the locker room with that baseball bat, smoking a cigar. And that was just, um, you oh, know, yes. Ro- that was Robert De Niro um, as Al Capone in the in Untouchables level shit, like, no. <laughs> and, you know, and it's Chicago, and it's just like all of it. It was just this perfect, uh, and uh, I have to say, it's amazing that he uh, smoked yeah, that he smoked that, so many cigars and still played like that. But um, it was uh, just an incredible moment of, uh, wow, he, this guy is a true gangster. <laughs> Like in the best sense of the word. Yeah. And uh, and uh yeah and, and yes, and payback some of it.
0: So sorry, Jake, I mean I was I had the exact same thought process as you without section really stuck out to me, except I titled it the untouchable.
2: Nice, yes. Yeah, it it's it's one of those things where like yeah, the, the puns just write themselves, but it's uh it was just you just would never see that today. Yeah. And uh he was a real mm-hmm. Man, he was a tough guy, man.
0: That scene what he was what he's swinging in the bat in the change room was like some of the most amazing shit. Cause the uh the what the producer or the director of that, that particular footage asks him to stop. He goes, I'm not pissed off. He just bought once. There'll be a dog fight tomorrow. And then he said, Let's see if all that trash talk, talking. Let's see you do all that trash talking in the beginning of the game. That's zero zero. It's easy to talk shit when you're up. That's a sign of a good man. If you can talk shit when it's even, or talk shit when you're behind, when you when you're ahead, it's easy to talk. That's yeah. just like that's no Steve Zalesian couldn't write shit like that.
2: Oh, exactly. Yeah, and it's one of those things. It goes back to you know earlier episodes well you know when they're talking about the riff with isaiah and what have you ultimately michael no matter how tough he was in the trash talking he was all about the sport and sportsmanship and so yeah it's like if you're up and you're trash talking then you're just an asshole right but if you're close and you're trash talking okay now it's a competition right or if you're if you're losing and you're like i'm coming for you then that's some gangster shit. And, uh, and he just comes back and he blows him out. Like it was just, it was, <laughs> it, it was it was amazing. That really cracked me up is the interview with BJ. Cause you could just see that yeah, on his face, he was just like, I mean, I had a good game. <laughs> and he just knows that he's got the shit-eating uh, <laughs> grin on his face. And he's like, what was I supposed to do? Like, it's like, yeah, well, yeah, there were consequences, son.
1: <laughs> we need to also acknowledge those uh, that Hornets team because that team was crazy. It was BJ Armstrong, Muggsy Bogues, Del Curry, uh, Blotty Divak, Anthony Mason, Vernon Maxwell was on that team, JR Reed and Glenn Rice. What? Yeah. I didn't know Mad Max that's was on that team.
0: That's a crazy team.
1: They were, that's why I guess they were considered a threat because they had a good couple of pieces there.
0: But it's it's kind of funny because as stacked as that team looks on paper, at the beginning of that section of the documentary, Bj Armstrong kind of says, "Look, we're not that good of a team. We know the players are much more superior." But yeah, paper that sounds like a really good team.
1: We're fifty-one and thirty-one that year, which Hornets haven't been fifty-one for like years since Jordan took Yep.
2: Well, the other thing in this episode, uh, I mean, uh, the, the thing that made me laugh was um, when uh, Jordan's uh, talking about playing the supersonics, and um, they're, they're showing uh, him the video of, of, of <laughs> <is it? laughs> okay, Payton talking about, oh, yeah, you know, I, people were just afraid of Mike, I just pushed back and stuff. And Mike's like, that's not what happened because it, it was father's day i was thinking about my dad I had a lot of, on my mind i had nothing to do because i can handle the glove
1: they were up three nothing and this is what i was saying before uh when we were talking about the uh, battles between the pistons and the knicks it always felt like the bulls were kind of anticlimactic in the finals like it was always the battles in the eastern conference finals those were the epic things and the where the mythology kind of fits in
0: but yeah it's good are always
1: like just kind of like go through the finals pretty like they almost like slip walk through it. I mean, Bob Costas had that line right at the beginning of that series with the Sonics where he said, this is more of a coronation than anything else. We just got to go through it now.
2: Okay. Well, so, the, we're at the end of episode eight, where there are two episodes left in the series. Um, man, I think next week, the next, uh, Sunday is going to be a rough one. I, I'm going to miss, um, looking forward to this every week um and oh, you guys have any uh thoughts on what you expect to see in the final two episodes
0: mm, i mean you know there's there's stuff with his kids that's what the the rumor is so it, it'd be it'd be good to get a little insight on what it was like growing up to be their kid uh, the, the kids of michael jordan
2: for sure the family stuff and the
1: kids and... unfortunately tried to play basketball
2: <laughs> oh was it marcus uh the... No, Marcus has the has the trophy room. The, the the his the sneaker store, right? Or Jeffrey, maybe?
1: They both played. They should have changed that last name. It's like uh, Tom Hanks' son when he does his acting thing or whatever. Like, all right, whatever, dude.
2: Well, but you know, I think if they do uh, give some play to the to the to the children and to the sons, especially, it, it would be a nice way to sort of bookend and, and connect. You know, his relationship to his father and um, how. You know what he may have learned or, or you know taken away from his relationship with his father and how that was passed on to his children um so i, I do think it would be a, a nice moment to have uh just in terms of you know making those connections between uh the the you know you know the fatherhood connections essentially because you know his father was such a huge um deal in his life uh and to see how he was able to or not you know, pass that on to his kids.
1: I'm looking forward to the flu game and having Jordan talk about that because that game is just so epic. Oh my God, yes. The mythology of Jordan and the fact that right at the end.
2: Oh, for sure. Yeah, that flu game, that's got to be.
0: On the reverse of that, though, it's going to be potentially one more Scottie Pippen kind of in a bad light moment. I mean, it's not nothing that it was directly his fault, but uh, I think in the last game of the '90s, Scotty had back spasms, and he was quite ineffective. So, kind of just another kind of Scotty in a good light story.
1: Then there's all these moments—the back spasms, the migraine headache game uh, with the Pistons—the I'm not going to go in with Tony Kukoc uh, game—all these pivotal leadership faulty moments with Pippen. Do they affect your relationship with Pippen? Do you see him in a lesser light or do you still consider him like he is one of the greatest, 50, one of the 50 greatest players?
0: No, I, I, you know, honestly doesn't, um, doesn't change my attitude. Doesn't change my attitude towards Pippen. Um,
2: so, I mean, the, I'll just say this that the, uh, the episode, uh, ends with the uh with the sobbing uh on the floor. Uh there's also a moment with him and his sons uh near the end of the episodes. near the, near the end of it, uh, episode eight. And uh so it'll be interesting to see because there's still with two episodes up, there's still potentially a lot that needs to get done here, uh just in terms of the storytelling. Uh obviously the climax of, of the of the of the championship uh, but also, like you know, we've come along a, a long way with a lot of different characters, and it'll be interesting to see how they wrap up Phil Jackson and, and Rodman and Pippen and and uh, some of the other guys as well. Um, so I'm really looking forward to seeing how they kind of, you know, hopefully they stick the landing. Um, we, we've been in really good hands with this uh, with the filmmakers, and um, I look forward to seeing how they uh, they bring us home.
1: All right. It's a good note. We can leave it there. So we will be back for the uh final episodes of uh, Jordan Ain't No Joke, covering the last dance. Uh, so stay tuned. Thank you.
2: Thanks for listening. Thank you.
1: We didn't even get to the double nickel game.
0: Yeah, sorry.